Alright, good morning once again. It's a privilege to stand up here and to uh, open God's Word. I pray that uh, God's been at work in each of our lives this week as we've uh, prepared to come to this place for worship. Because something special does happen when we join together and worship God. Um, you know, there's, a, there's importance, there's a meaningful things that happen in our daily quiet times, our daily quiet hours that we spend with the Lord. That becomes the ground for, upon which we stand in our day-to-day -day interactions and the challenges we face, the opportunities that present themselves. But also, uh, when we come together, there's a certain sort of uh, synergy that happens. We find strength. We draw strength from others. Uh, we're greater than the, the, the effect of worshiping together is greater than just the sum of the individual parts. Something really important happens on Sunday mornings when we gather to worship. And so I pray that you carry that sense of kind of wonder and expectation as we gather. So uh, this is week number eight in our Law and Prophets teaching series. Uh, and this morning's message is called An Eye for an Eye Until the Whole World is Blind. An Eye for an Eye Until the Whole World is Blind. Resentment. Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Nelson Mandela, Carrie Fisher, Buddha, St. Augustine, Joanna Weaver, Marianne Williamson, and Malachi McCourt have all said this, apparently. This quote has been given by all these people, Nelson Mandela, Carrie Fisher, Buddha, St. Augustine, Jonah. <laughs> this poignant and popular quote, it captures well two things. It captures well the corrosive quality of holding a grudge, of, of seeking revenge, of living a life that's just really aimed at just getting revenge. So it captures well that, but it also captures the unreliability of quotes you might find on the internet. Because clearly all these people didn't say this. You know, it's like, how many quotes have you found that, oddly, are all from Abraham Lincoln? Weird, huh? Yeah. Um, but the thing is, we all get it. We all know it's true. Holding a grudge never seems to work out very well, does it? Holding a grudge never seems to work out. It never seems to quite achieve that desired end, does it? But we've all been there, right? We've all been hurt. We've all been offended. We've all been wronged. We've been violated. We've been wounded. And without really choosing to allow it to happen, that wound persists and that wound starts to fester. We've, we end up nursing a seething desire to get even. We desire to make the offended person pay. And this festering, this seething desire can really turn into a toxic fixation, a, a, an acidic sort of ambition inside of us. Have you ever found yourself in that place where something has really gotten a hold of you and you just can't seem to let it go? It's where your mind drifts to when you're laying in bed on ceiling patrol, not being able to sleep. This is what you think about. How great it would be if this person felt a little bit of the pain that they caused you to feel. We find ourselves longing to savor the sweetness of revenge. I mean, I know most of you, and most of you aren't seething. I wouldn't say, oh, that person, they're seething. They're seething with anger and rage. They're desiring revenge and at every turn. No, but it's in there, isn't it? There's people, if we made a list right now, you might add to that list like this person, I wish they would have got what was coming to them. I really wish that would have brought me a, a degree of satisfaction. 
Think back to the last time you found yourself in this situation. Think back to that last time that you felt that desire to see someone uh, get payback. How did it play out? Did they get paid back? Did they get paid back? Did it work? Did holding a grudge actually satisfy that, that void in the universe? Did your desire to see this person suffer? Did it fill that vacuum in your soul? Did, you, did your revenging, did it bring balance to the force? Did it fix everything? Did you see that? Did seeing that person feel some pain, did it satisfy you at some deep level? Did it right the wrong? At the end of it all, did it right that which was wrong in what they did? Or what happened to you? Or perhaps recall this scenario. Maybe you got hurt, maybe you desired revenge, but maybe you never got the chance to exact it. You never got the chance to get even. And, to make matters worse, the offending person went right on living their life. As if nothing happened. Right out there in front of everybody, they go on living their life, blissfully unaware of all the anguish, bitterness, and suffering that they caused you. I know you can think of that time, right? I know you've lived long enough to be wounded, to be hurt, and someone either aware or unaware, they go on living, and you just keep waiting, even praying sometimes, that the lightning bolt with their name on it would come crashing down. But it doesn't happen. They keep advancing, being promoted, uh, walking on water, if it, as it were, and it's just like, what? Why? Why is this? How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel when that happens? How did, how did that make you feel when it happened? Is it still there? Do you feel still flinch a little bit when you think about it? I will wager that it kind of sucked. That's a technical term, but it, it does. I mean, I can't think of a better way. It's like in uh, Dune, when that big sandworm comes up and just swallows everything and pulls it down into the underworld. That's kind of what it feels like. It sucks us into a deep, dark place. How do I know? Because I am familiar with the suck. I've been there too. I've been there too. Uh, unfortunately, moving into a pastoral role, shepherding a group of believers does not allow you to high step over all the difficulty. In fact, it puts a gigantic crosshairs right on your chest. It makes you really, really stick out and really, really vulnerable to these kind of hurts. Because when it comes down to it, people oftentimes don't see the pastor as a friend or as a fellow traveler. They see you as a representative of an organization which they no longer agree with, they no longer support, or they no longer uh, can get on board with. And so you kind of get thrown out with the bathwater, in a sense, uh, relationally. And it happens a lot. So if you want to feel sorry for me, I guess that sounded a little more wah-wah than I wanted to, but that's okay. I have wanted people who have hurt me, I've wanted them to feel God's righteous wrath. I mean, after all, they hurt a pastor, right? You know, I wanted them to, I wanted God to be as indignant as I was, and I wanted Him to uh, exact some righteous wrath upon them, yet I only see them keep advancing. I see them only living their best life. I see them going on, blissfully unaware, trampling all over my feelings and all over my deeply held convictions and beliefs. Now, you might wonder who I'm talking about, and I'll tell you. It's not the idiots on Facebook. It's not those idiots on Twitter. 
It's, it's real people. I'm talking about real people. I'm talking about those people that I've trusted, those people that I have loved, those that should have known better. Indeed, I'm talking about people who would say that they love Jesus Christ, that they're following Jesus Christ, that they claim to be sensitive people, caring people. Uh, these are the same people that have accused. They are the people that have abandoned. They are, they are the ones who have maligned and they have wounded me, my family, and our church. These are the people I'm thinking about. It doesn't take long for experiences like this to really tie up something in your heart. Really just tangle things up. Our emotions end up all in a knot, and we find that we are just hijacked. We are hijacked by the hurt. We're hijacked for the desire for revenge. And it, our, our, our ability to forgive is ultimately what's at stake. Our, our ability to forgive, our willingness to forgive is hijacked. And something about it makes us sick deep down in our souls. Maybe you've known someone that does love Jesus, but they've been hurt so often and so badly that they've just really become bitter. They've become almost defined by the wound. They've been defined by the betrayal, and they just can't seem to move. They can't seem to move forward. They can't seem to move up. They can't seem to move beyond. They're just immobilized, and the hurt speaks so loudly, nothing the Holy Spirit can say in their life can, can convince them otherwise. Have you seen this happen? Maybe you've been in this spot before. It's terrible. So, all that being said, I find it telling that Jesus brings this up. Jesus points out our propensity for seeking revenge. He, he identifies our innate desire for an, of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He knows we, by default, find ourselves in that sort of justice thinking. Well, if it happened to me, it will only be made right if I can do the same thing to them. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We should always be paying attention when Jesus takes enough time and talks about something often enough, talks about an issue, and he talks about it enough that it makes it into the Bible. Remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is kind of his greatest hits album, right? These are the things he taught about frequently enough and forcefully enough that all of the gospel writers seem to have heard it. Paul seemed to have heard it. It became a central understanding, a way of living in the Christian life, that we don't seek revenge. Here is a theme. This is a truth that we ought not miss according to who? According to King Jesus, right? So let's, like the people around Jesus on the hillside in Matthew, let's pay attention as well, because Jesus has our best interests at heart. He knows the damage and the destruction that uh, lack of forgiveness can cause. Nursing a grudge, seeking revenge, he knows what that does to our souls. He knows what kind of person that can turn us into, and he wants us to be free from that, to be healed from that. Now, it is in our nature to want things fair. We don't have to learn that we ought to desire for injustices to be made right. It's just in us. I've often said that as human beings, we are born with a finely tuned, finely tuned ferrometer. We all have a ferrometer inside. We have a ferrometer uh, that detects when things are unfair. 
They detect when we don't get a fair deal. They, they pick up on when we get shortchanged and when things aren't equally given as they are deserved. Uh, we can pick up on that uh, in microscopic amounts. <laughs> I heard a, I was listening to a podcast about pythons this weekend. And you know, pythons have uh, pits in their heads that uh, they sense heat and it integrates into their optic nerve, so their vision includes color and light, but also heat signatures. It's like Predator. You remember that movie? And they're so sensitive that they can detect temperature change down to 0.001% of, of a degree. That's how sensitive it is. But I would wager, I would hazard to say that our ferrometer is almost as sensitive. Man, if we sense something that isn't fair, something's just slightly off, we notice and that little light starts blinking in our head. It's like, not fair, not fair. The force is out of whack, must make amends, must make it right. Right? We have a, a finely tuned ferrometer. Exhibit A, watch children at play. How long do you have to watch these children at play before one of them will cry out that something is not fair? Hey, that's not fair. Give it back. You took what is not yours. You've had more time than I've had with the iPad, right? How long do you have to watch? 10 seconds? 30 seconds? 10 minutes? I don't know. Watch children. Inherent in their claim of injustice or unfairness is the expectation that that other child must behave differently, they must do something to fix what they've done, and that justice must be served. They should pay for what they have done. Why else do they cry out for mom? Why else do they cry out for dad? Because there's been an injustice in the universe and it must be addressed. They must pay. How do they pay? They give it back. They get in trouble. They have to go do chores, whatever it is. We know. Children know. Like so many things in our fallen world, this desire for justice and for fairness, it is not a bad thing. It is part of God's good creation. We have to believe that before the fall, Adam and Eve had in them a desire for justice, a desire for goodness and fairness in the world. This is part of God's good creation. Yet, like so many other things, it, by sin, has been warped, it's been co-opted, it's been exaggerated, and it's been distorted. I mean, almost everything in our life started out as a good thing, but then sin came along and it just uh, pulled it aside, it distracted and distorted it, and our sense of justice and desire for fairness has equally been affected by the fall. But thankfully, Jesus came. Jesus comes to us, He sits with us, and He offers us much-needed guidance. He offers us much-needed clarity on this deep issue that we all experience and with which we all struggle. Thank Jesus for this. He comes and patiently sits with us and helps lead us in a better restorative way, a way that leads to freedom. So open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, today we're reading in verses 38 through 42. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat also. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Everyone heard this passage before? Right, here again, Jesus is starting with a teaching that they knew. 
Okay, he starts off by saying, you've heard it said. You know this, right? You know how the law works, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You've heard this said, right? What should we do with this? I think sometimes we hear a familiar passage like, oh, I know what that means. We've talked about this before. So we go ahead and just like set it off to the side. We think we can check out right now and just like not hear this. But we have to. We have to approach this passage maybe because we are familiar with it and say, God, help me hear this with fresh ears. We should ask good questions. When, when studying a passage of Scripture, I think it's good to ask three questions. One, what, it, what does this passage say about God? What does it say about who He is, His character, His nature, His desires? Secondly, uh, what does this passage say about me? What does it say about us? And then thirdly, what are we to do about it? How ought we respond to what we've seen and recognized about God as revealed in this passage, uh, what's revealed about me and us in this passage? How then ought we live in light of this teaching? In this case, uh, we should observe human nature generally, the desire for revenge, and Israel's world specifically. Understand that most of the people sitting around Jesus that day were of, the, of Israel. They were Jewish people. They were steeped in the law of Moses, the Torah. What do we know about humans, and what can we know and understand about Israel? Well, we've identified the human tendency to seek justice and revenge. We know that's in us as human beings. Uh, we've, uh, but Israel, Israel had some particular ideas when it came to crime and punishment. They had uh, God-given concepts regarding seeking restitution and preventing violations. Okay, this was spoken to in the Torah, in the law given to Moses by God. Uh, while things like divorce and punishment are not part of God's original design, they are tragic realities in our world, so God offers guidance. God offers guardrails. If the fall hadn't happened, much of the Old Testament would not have needed to be written. Much of the most of the New all the whole Bible would be really thin. It'd be as thin as some churches like it to be, right? Uh, there wouldn't be much to write about if the fall hadn't happened. But because the fall happened, there's a lot of unintended consequences that we have to live with. Unfortunate realities that punctuate and pollute the human experience, and God speaks to them. He must help constrain these urges and these deviances in our, in our society, so He gives laws, He sets boundaries, He puts in guardrails. Now, just as Jesus had spoken about divorce, which is a good example, did God intend divorce? No, but divorce happened. So God provided the way for it to, that it ought to happen, and it shouldn't be easy. It should have consequence. But he spoke to it, and Jesus said, He only allowed this because you were hard-hearted, you were stiff-necked, you're a stubborn people. So, just as Jesus spoke of divorce in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, He spoke of divorce without condoning its practice, here, Jesus acknowledges our urge for revenge, likewise without condoning it. As before, Jesus is not opposing Moses' uh, law. He's not opposing the, the guidance that God gave to Moses. He's actually elevating it. He's elevating it to the level of our hearts and our attitudes, not just our actions and behaviors. Okay, Jesus would say that which we, he said about adultery and lust, about divorce, about hatred, about seeking revenge, is not about what you actually end up doing. 
Just like God warning Cain about like, hey, you must master this. You must master this anger that's crouching right outside your door. You must be the master of this. He comes and warns about that which has taken root inside Cain's heart. Not the fact so much that he's, he's like, hey, I hate it that you're about to lift a rock and bash in Abel's skull. It's like, no, the problem here is that something's going on in your heart. You're, being, you're nurturing something in your heart that goes uh, in the opposite direction of the path I've laid before you. So he's desiring us to understand and address our, our hearts and our attitudes before they blossom, bear fruit as actions and behaviors. Here, the InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary uh, explains it. Jesus is not so much revoking a standard for justice as calling his followers not to make use of it. We qualify justice with mercy because we do not need to avenge our honor. Jesus calls for this humble response of faith in God. Why? God alone is the final arbiter of justice, and we must trust Him to fulfill it. Man, that's tough, isn't it? That's said in a sentence, but man, it's hard. It's hard to just trust God that He will bring justice. Man, we'll wear ourselves out trying to get justice, but at the end of the day, sometimes that's all we're left with. We have to trust, because there's nothing we can do about it. Now, this passage from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it is familiar to us, but just because it's familiar doesn't mean it's not often misunderstood. This is a passage that's pretty uh, often misunderstood. We may imagine that the Mosaic Law, the Torah, allowed Israelites to go, go around poking eyes out or, or punching people's teeth out because they had wronged them. We have this sense of vigilante justice. It's like, wow, ouch, you poked my eye out. All right, stand still, you know, and I'm going to poke your eye out also. Or you knocked my tooth out, I'm going to knock your tooth out. But this idea of vigilante justice in Israel uh, is actually pretty far from the truth. It wasn't the Wild West. God was the giver of laws, and he created systems in which this law was to be enforced. The event, Expositor's Bible Commentary is helpful in this. It explains, and have your Bible out. We're going to go back to the Torah here. The Old Testament prescription was not given to foster vengeance. The law explicitly forbade uh, that practice. Rather, it was given, as the Old Testament context shows, to provide the nation's judicial system with a ready formula of punishment, not least because it would decisively terminate vendettas. The effect of the law given by God to Moses was that, hey, this gives you a way uh, to pursue justice and see justice met without you living your life seeking vendettas. Running around trying to get even, knock out eyeballs and, and teeth, right? Look at this. Uh, someone turned to Exodus chapter 21. Uh, Grady, you got it? Okay, someone turned to Leviticus 24. Anyone? Reader, good reader. Christy, uh, Leviticus 24, turn there. Someone turn to, to Deuteronomy 19. Anyone else? Okay, Kelly, uh, Deuteronomy 19. And then someone turn to Leviticus 19. All right, Lacey. Okay, in Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. Go ahead and read that for us, Grady. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so, okay, really? This one? It gets better. So that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as a woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
This is crazy. I mean, think about the context here. God is giving this instruction that if you harm a pregnant woman and the baby dies, it's a life for a life. That if that woman gives birth and the baby's fine, then it's, it's a lesser punishment. But that God would speak to orderly uh, justice in society. That's pretty great. I mean, we talk about the code of Hammurabi and stuff like it's the cat's pajamas. But I mean, look at this. This is really textured and, and, and goes into great detail. It's crazy. Okay, let's look at uh, Leviticus 24, 19 through 20. Leviticus 24, 19 through 20. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Okay, and then let's look at uh, Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 21. Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 21. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Okay, hold on to this passage, because what's different here? It sounds like some of these other passages that have been read, that it's an eye for an eye. There's an, equal, there's an equilibrium that has to be established, but who does it? This passage that Kelly just read said, you bring it before the judges, that the priests will moderate and mediate in this. They will listen closely and bring it to the law and say, okay, well, this is how it has to be um, brought back into order. This is how the, the, the injustice has to be met, and they would prescribe the punishment. It wasn't just you had to go make it right on your own. You had to stand before the authorities. You had to submit to that structure for justice to be meted out under the law. Now, Leviticus 19.18. Lacey? You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, we love our neighbors when we obey the law. And even back in, in Leviticus, we're hearing, hey, do not seek justice. So how do we hold this intention that there is specifics about how we, uh, how we address wrongs, how we address injustices, that if you cause pain, you receive pain, kind of things like that. But it happens in a system, in a structure that God provides. But to us as individuals following after Jesus and desiring to, li to live a life pleasing to God, we hear this passage, do not seek vengeance. Instead, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the, the, the foundation, the baseline understanding in which we are to live. Vengeance belongs to God and the order that He's established. We are to operate in love, and we love well by obeying the laws that God has put in place. So um, Israel had a highly organized, I mean, think about how long ago this was. Israel had a, a highly organized law of retaliation. A law of retaliation, and it was called the Lex Talionis. The Lex Talionis. The law of retaliation, which guided communal life. And it stemmed from Genesis 9, 5 through 6, and then punctuates, pops up all throughout the Torah. Someone look, someone, who else didn't read? I need one more reader. All right, Jamie, look up Genesis 9, 
verses 5 and 6. This is God, after the flood, speaking to Noah, establishing a new kind of covenant in the world that is just freshly dried out and kind of like rebooted. He's like, this is the kind of covenant, this is how you are to operate. Uh, Genesis 9, 5 through 6. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has man in the image of God has God made man. Okay, read that last sentence again. This is key. For in the image of God has God made man. Right. Why don't we harm each other? Why don't we bring bloodshed for bloodshed? Because when you do, you're not just harming another person, you're harming an image bearer. Now, there's a spiritual gravity and, and importance to our life here and how we regard each other and how we go about seeking vengeance and retaliation. We have to understand that this person, even as despicable as they have behaved, as, evilly as, they, as evil as their actions have been, they are still an image bearer and I have no right to rise up against that and raise my fist against God. I have no right. I have no right in this. And this is all the way back in Genesis, guys. This isn't new. Jesus isn't like... And now for something completely different, you know. He's building on what they already knew, but he's bringing it to life. Like we said, elevating it to the level of hearts, attitudes. According to the Lex Talionis, only the judicial system had the authority to exact punishment. They, only the, the, the judicial establishment, the authorities had the, uh, the, author, the right or the ability to, 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 to righteously demand an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But... Here we find Jesus, as in every other area, putting a new twist to it, saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He is instructing his followers to grow, grow beyond the law, and to ultimately place their feet, ground their trust in God as the one who brings true vindication. As in areas of anger, adultery, divorce, and making of vows, Jesus leads us into deeper waters here. Remember, he's always moving us forward, always pushing us uphill, not downhill. It's further up and further in, not further down and further out, right? Further up and further in. He's leading us into deeper waters. He's inviting our life to spill out of its banks into these wider channels of faith. Have you ever found Jesus doing this in your life? Calling you to something deeper? Calling you to something uh, wider? Something that's beyond what you would naturally be inclined to do or understand or pursue? Now, Jesus lays this out, but then he goes on to provide four scenarios. Four scenarios or illustrations in which we can practice what he's teaching us. Uh, and he doesn't go for these like big, heavy, easy-to-identify ones. He goes to those real close-to-home ones that really get in through the fence pretty easily in our life. right? He gives four illustrations, four scenarios that we can practice overlooking offenses, we can practice forgiving, and we can practice trusting in God. First, when someone insults you, and or physically harms and offends you, as we read in verse 39, the second part of verse 39. Secondly, when someone takes you to court or sues you for all your belongings or any of your belongings, as we read in verse 40. Third, when you are used. When you are used, the example given here is when you are forced to carry a soldier's gear, a Roman soldier's gear. Talk about feeling used. Yeah, that was it for a Jewish listener. Oh, you know those times when a Roman soldier commandeers your body to carry their stuff? Yeah, 
that's the example I want you to think about. And they were like, grumble, grumble, <laughs> grumble. Hmm. Okay, how about something more theoretical, Jesus? We like it when Jesus stays squarely in the theoretical realm, right? But no, he goes right into that like personal, like uh, flinch-inducing area, right? So when someone insults you or physically harms you, second, when someone takes you to court or sues you for belongings, third, when you are used, and then fourth, when you are asked for stuff by undeserving people. What? That happens all the time. Yeah, but Jesus thinks it's important for us to understand when people ask you for stuff and they're undeserving, they totally don't deserve it. This is how I want you to behave. This is how I want you to think, and this is how I want you to act. And we read about that in verse 42. That each of these situations, though, presents an opportunity for us to, at the end of the day, put our faith into action. You see, it's easy for us to miss the contextual and cultural forces behind each of these examples. Remember, Israel was an oppressed people. They were living in an occupied land. They were not masters of their own fates at this point. They were not the uh, captains of their own ship. They lived in the, shadow, in the shadow of the Roman Empire, and that infiltrated every aspect of life. Now, in some ways they were very different from us, but in a lot of ways they are very like us. First, to be slapped across the face in public. Okay, uh, It says, uh, I say do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. What? Imagine that someone hauls off and slaps you in public. How's that going to make you feel? Maybe meditate on that for a moment. No, you don't have to think. You know this is an, it hurts, it insults my dignity, and it makes me look like a fool in front of my friends. To be slapped across the face in public was a gross insult, a severe insult. There was no greater humiliation than to be backhanded in front of your peers and your family. I mean, imagine that today. We don't have like cultural mores and folkways about this, but seriously, if someone backhanded you in front of your friends and family, how would you respond? Would Jesus' teaching here be difficult for you? I'm here to confess to you that I would have a hard time with this. I would have a hard time saying, oh, good shot. Have you considered this cheek? Man, my flesh would rise up really quickly. Being slapped across the face was the equivalent of throwing down the gauntlet in other cultures or being challenged to a duel in others. A slap across the cheek, it invited a response from the one slapped. Right? No one backhanded someone without expecting some sort of retaliation. So how weird would it be then for a Christ follower to not be angry, not raise their hand in return, but to say, here's the other cheek. I'll receive a double portion of what you think I deserve. It's so countercultural. It's so weird. Instead of striking back, Jesus says, turn your other cheek and be willing to receive another slap. What and why? I don't know. Uh, he wants to address something deep inside. Secondly, next, uh, being sued for personal belongings. It was humiliating. It was very personal and oftentimes devastating. You know, you may feel like you're living on a shoestring, but thinking about an agrarian culture where one season of poor crops could ruin you, someone suing you for that meager portion that you do have, that could ruin you, leading to death and despondency. I mean, it was bad news. So being sued for personal belongings was humiliating and personal. Most men uh, had it wore an inner garment, which was called their tunic or a shirt, uh, and they also had an outer garment, which was a cloak or a coat of some sort. Now, one under the law could come and demand your shirt, 
Your, 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 your coat was inalienable. No one had the right to come and say, give me your outer garment. Why was this? Because sometimes that was the matter uh, of life and death. For the poor, their tunic was also what? It was their bedding. Is that which kept them warm at night? They would sleep on it and under it to stay warm and make it through the night. But here, Jesus is challenging his listeners to really, really, at a fundamental level, trust God even beyond those legal limitations and personal protections. What does he say? He says, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat also. This is radical trust, isn't it? Not just stifling your own personal reactions and response, but saying, I'm going to go and give you that which is beyond the law. I'm going to put myself at risk to fulfill Jesus' guidance here. To become more and more that kind of person Jesus calls me to be. Take my coat also. The third example Jesus gives, uh, he uses the example that surely caused most of his uh, listeners to react. As soon as he brought up the Roman soldier... Everyone flinched, like, oh, no, no, no. Surely he's not going here. He's not going to take it this far, is he, guys? Oh, he is. He is taking it this far. He, Jesus says, when a Roman soldier forces you to carry his stuff, do it gladly and offer to carry it further. Do you have anything else I can carry there, Captain? Give it to me. I'll, t I'll carry it. Oh, and I'm going to go twice as far as you want me to. I'm going to go twice as far. Roman soldiers had the right... They had the right to demand that their supply, demand that their supplies. Um, they, had to they had the right to demand supplies from you. They could take your stuff, but they could also commandeer your body to carry their stuff. Roman soldiers could force Jews to surrender their belongings, their time, their energy, and also their dignity in carrying their stuff. Be my pack mule. Carry my stuff because I don't want to carry it myself. I would rather you carry it. You, carry my stuff. Uh, it was not uncommon to be called upon by a soldier to carry his luggage or his gear, but it was limited to a prescribed distance. A Roman soldier could ask you to carry his stuff for a Roman mile. <laughs> Oddly enough, for 1,620 yards or 0.92 miles. This was a Roman mile. So a Roman soldier could ask you to carry it. Will you carry my stuff for 0.92 miles? And you'd have to do it. You'd have to do it. But uh, this Roman practice was a hot source of outrage among the Israelites. They hated this. This flew in the face of who they were in their dignity, their, uh, their, their pride as a nation. They were subjected by the Romans, and this was one more of them punctuating that in the day-to-day -day life of the average Israelite. Carry my stuff. Carry my stuff. But Jesus, again, points us in the opposite direction that we would expect. He points us away from our natural inclination, and toward, uh, which is toward outrage. It's toward spitefulness and vengefulness. Okay, I'll do it because you got a sword, but I'm not going to like it. And I'm going to get out of it as soon as I can. And I hope no one sees me. Yeah, he's going to point us away from this. He tells us to do even more than we're asked. asked surprise the soldier with our generosity. How weird is this? This person I've called upon to carry my stuff, uh, they're not fuming. They're not grumbling. Instead, they've just asked if they can carry my stuff a second mile. That they can go even further. This is so unexpected and so weird. 
So the last example that Jesus gives is uh, he points our heart toward a deeper trust in God by inviting us to cultivate <laughs> a generous spirit. Many of us think that we're generous people, and sure. But what about the person on the corner holding the sign that you know has more money in their pocket than you do? <laughs> you know, they're asking. They're not going to use it well. They're, 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 it's a con. It's, it's, a, it's a racket. You know, they're not going to spend it well or wisely. You know, you start asking these questions. But Jesus is here trying to cultivate a generous spirit in us, especially toward who? Specifically, especially toward undeserving people. Undeserving people, those that might desire to take advantage of us. He's like, hey, you've got these people around you. You walk past them every day. You're going to get asked. So how ought you respond as a Christ follower? Now, given the tone of this passage, this last scenario is unexpected. And it uncomfortably applies to all of us, right? Because we're all going to be asked. Everyone in this room is uh, a have who is surrounded by have-nots in their daily life, their weekly life. So Jesus says, hey, this applies to you, and I know it's uncomfortable. Now, when someone asks, instead of evaluating their worthiness, how worthy is this person of our time or energy uh, and of our stuff, we are learning to live open-handedly enough to give without expectations. Is that hard for you? Is it hard to give without expectations? We don't want anything in return oftentimes, but we do kind of want an assurance that they're not going to be dumb, right? They're not going to do something destructive or, or uh, that's going to further their circumstances, right? And so we get kind of stu stuck in this conundrum, of like, oh, am I really just enabling here? You know, we start asking a lot of questions, but Jesus is like, hey, give without expectations. We have all been given more than we deserve. We have all been given more than we deserve, and we are expected to give generously to those in need, regardless of circumstance. Guys, this is something that ultimately we have to leave up to God. Trusting that the Holy Spirit can guide the use of this thing we're giving generously. All the while, we must trust in God in all areas of life, in all areas of our interaction, including our generosity, and including where we started in revenge. Here, Jesus offers up an equal opportunity challenge. Jesus is speaking into areas uh, with which we all probably struggle. We all struggle with something in this list, all these scenarios, at some point. Am I right? I mean, Jesus covered a lot of ground here, and it all applies at some point, doesn't it? If it doesn't, if you can't think of it applying to you in the past, get ready. Because this week, I guarantee you're going to run into something that fits what Jesus is talking about here. Be ready. Where is it for you? Have you been humiliated? How ought we respond? Have you suffered loss at the hands of another? How ought we respond? Have you been manipulated? Have you been spitefully used? How are we supposed to live with that? What is Jesus calling us into? What is he calling us toward as his followers? Here's my hunch. There is real, deeper soul work that needs to happen in us today. It has to happen in me too. There's real, deep soul work that the Holy Spirit wants to affect in us, in you, in me today. So let us all go and consider what Jesus desires for us to hear him say today. Can we commit to that? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to finish with a closing meditation. Remember I said the Apostle Paul 
heard this from Jesus. He incorporated this into his theological framework, his doctrinal understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to finish up with Romans chapter 12, verses 12 through 21. I'm going to read it as our closing meditation, and I'd like you to just close your eyes and listen. And with Samuel, say, Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. My prayer is that no one would leave her unchanged today. No one will leave her unchallenged and unprovoked by the Holy Spirit. There's deep work to be done in our souls. And Jesus desires that to bear fruit. So let's listen closely. Romans 12, verses 12 through 21. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Let's pray. Father, we sit before you today under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, understanding that we're far from perfect in this area. Jesus found it important to talk to those around him um, about this subject matter. It was a challenge for the people sitting around Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, and it's a challenge for us sitting around Jesus here today. Lord, as long as this is just theoretical or conceptual, we can uh, appropriate it rightly and just think, okay, yeah, that's how we ought to live. But God, when this really intrudes into our real life, this is hard. When people do things that aren't fair, when, things that, when people do things that hurt us, take things from us that are not theirs, when they trample all over our feelings and over our, our beliefs, it's so easy to get angry. And it's easy for uh, uh, us to go about seeking revenge. We really want to just get behind the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's so hard to let that go. That just runs so deeply within us, God. So we desperately need Jesus to come and show us a better way, a way that leads to life. So God, I know there's some people here that have been humiliated. There's people that have been used and abused. People that have been violated and devalued. We've all lived through times where your image was not respected in us. And there's been times where we didn't respect your image in others either. So God, we want to sit with you. We want to open our hearts to you that you might do a work in us. Maybe we've not done great about maybe we've not done great with this in the past, but God, this week, would you help grow us in this? Would you help us grow and become more like Jesus, the picture that Jesus painted here? that our hearts and our attitudes would be free and that we would actually do the unexpected thing of forgiveness and of grace, of gentleness and of peacemaking, that we would learn day by day how to trust in you, 
to trust in you to make things right, to trust in you to ultimately bring justice, ultimately bring back uh, things into a fair balance. God, if it bothers us, it's offending the Spirit, the image in us, your image. So the degree to which ever, the degree to which injustice offends and bothers us, we got to imagine that it offends you perfectly. It violates your sense of of justice infinitely. So God, I pray that we would hold this expanded understanding that Jesus gives us, and that it would order and direct how we live our our day to day life around actual people. Lord, do a healing work in our heart. Do a softening work in our hearts. God, help us become today the kind of people Jesus desires us to be. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's an opportunity for us to continue our conversation with the Lord. Be honest about what's happened and what you've been feeling. Don't be ashamed. Jesus already knows. The Holy Spirit's already within you pointing these things out. You can't hide anyway. So be honest with the Lord. Say, you know, search me and know me. I've been filled up with anger. I've been uh, idolizing this, this, this rage inside of me for too long. It's been more powerful than you, Jesus. I mean, some of us, our hurt and anger has become an idol. That which demands our devotion more so than the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus wants to come and free you from today. I trust this. I know this. So we're going to worship another, uh, sing another song. And this is a chance for you to begin that conversation, enter into that, that healing space with God through the power of the Holy Spirit under the Lordship of Jesus. Would you do that today? I know this is heavy work, and sometimes you need to pray with somebody. So if there's someone next to you that you feel comfortable reaching out, say, hey, could you pray with me? Help me carry this burden because I've carried it for so long, I'm exhausted. If you want to pray with me, I'll be at the back, and I'd love to uh, pray with you. But there's a lot of people in the room that would love to pray with you. Let's go to the Lord, and let's go to the Lord together.